Those are all things that people want to hear in an apology, and it's not what they usually get. There's always this fear of if I admit too much, that it will be used against me in the litigation process. Everybody who is listening uh, to this broadcast should, as soon as it's over, because this is a huge issue, call the risk manager. Hello, welcome. Rick B. Cotter, September issue, Risk Management Monthly. Uh, we have a special treat for you this month. Um, a guest who is um, really well known in uh, ASEP circles, uh, has uh, a very varied background. And those of you who are MRAP uh, subscribers heard uh, Louise and I do a segment, which was actually just released uh, regarding largely related to uh, physician suicide. But uh, this is Risk Management Monthly, so we, Louise, welcome. We also have a friend of yours from the old days, Greg Henry. Greg, nice to see you again, buddy. Good to and, see you. And Rachel Linder, who is uh, probably on shift at her hospital because I can see Still that. Here. I hope your house doesn't look like that. <laughs> it could be called like, Stark. Stark. Um, modern, modern, please. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> Clean much. Clean and modern. <laughs> Louise, would you, uh, I knew you when you were re really active in ASEP, which was kind of at the beginning of our careers uh, in emergency medicine. Can you give us a little, little history here? See, I was uh, active in leadership in ASEP for 40 years. So um, we were both practically children huh, when we got involved. And um, <laughs> I think uh, uh, predominantly everyone knew about you and everybody knew about Greg, um, but I think you and I first actually met when we were both on the editorial board of emergency medicine, uh, emergency physicians monthly. Greg, you won't remember this because only I would remember things like this. We met in England um, when you were a, this neurologist teaching uh, a, a, an emergency medicine course that my husband, Ted Harrison, and I were attending. Yes, yes, yes. Very good. That was that was at Cambridge. Yep. Well, yeah. and it's been a great you know, relationship. Thank you. Speaking of Cambridge, isn't your daughter home now? Just completing her MBA from some, you know, fly-by-night place over there, Cambridge. Yes. And uh, yes, she has gotten her master's, and she's home waiting to move on to her. Uh, next job in uh, in New York City, so uh, we're enjoying her uh, presence for a couple of weeks. Well, I was really surprised that she could get in. You know. <laughs> no, uh, we're Alice and I. We're buddies, so it's like I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic when she was applied and got in there. Yes, asking you shall receive. Yeah, you know, if you don't ask, you certainly don't get. So uh, she she's had a very a very interesting uh, time getting her master's degree, and uh, she's setting out to work for a living. What a concept! Louise, were you uh, involved with the council? I was the speaker of the council and vice speaker and speaker. Yeah. Yes, I I, re I recall that, but I I. That was a long time ago, and you started a. You had mentioned that you had talked to Mike Bresler before we got on the air. Michael was a, a also a speaker of the council, uh, and at the time, were you a Californian? No, I've never been a Californian. I was a Marylander, 
but Mike was definitely a role model and, um, and has always been a great friend. And, uh, you know, we still correspond sometimes. Yes. Mike, uh, was really, uh, I remember his leading the council very, very effectively. Uh, so the, the plan today is to talk about three things. Number one, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Louise's art. She wrote an article about when physicians are the plaintiff. And uh, I've never heard of that a topic like that before. And uh, I last asked that Louise kind of give us a rundown on some of her views as when physicians are the plaintiffs or when physicians are the victims of medical error, whether they become plaintiffs or not. And then the second uh, element uh, was, Louise, you do work um, counseling physicians who are going through the lawsuit process. And I was be curious as to what you do, what you find, uh, what general advice can you give to people who are well, we're all potentially uh, likely to head down that road one time in our lives. And so I would be really interested in that. And lastly, you have a particular interest in physician suicide. And, and um, you had mentioned a couple of days ago is Physician Suicide Awareness Month. And um, we're recording this on September 21st. We're always late for the month. But um so I wanted to cover the, those three topics, and you did acknowledge that each of those could go a long way, and I I do too. But I think that um, each of them is worth covering to, to at least some degree, uh, and I hope you all agree. Mm -hmm. Definitely worth trying to cover. <laughs> Rachel, you're you're free to jump in here at any time. By the way, you know. Well, I'm excited to go for it. Physicians as plaintiffs, let's do it. <laughs> Well, I, I think uh, first I, I want to do this this business about um, yes, I'm sorry, physicians as plaintiffs because you had a, you had a story of your own experiences, but which allowed you to generalize to other physicians who are going to get bad care and uh, how this stuff can work out and how do you address it. So why don't you give us a little bit on physician as plaintiff? Um, well, so yes, and then the third thing, if we have time for it, of course, is you know what, how you might or should approach a colleague who may or might be suicidal or is depressed. Right. So um, let me just say, first of all, what led to my interest in this topic, and it was a it was a Medscape blog because I do blog for them, and you're always looking for some interesting um, issue to you know to opine on. Um, is that there were a number of reports of possible mistreatment of physicians with COVID and also with um, post-acute COVID or long, long COVID, um, which unfortunately seemed, the ones that were reported seemed primarily to affect minorities and particularly women. And, and at about the same time, there were a number of discussions, not necessarily related to these stories, but at the same time as to whether it is wise to even discuss that you are a physician when seeking treatment for various reasons, which I'll, I'll, I'll briefly touch on if I can. So um, throughout my career, as, as Rick mentioned, I've had you know, several huge interests. One is um, prevention of physician suicide, and one is helping physicians to manage the stresses of litigation. But I also have spoken and written on vagaries of 
of physician, if you will, patienthood. And I was introduced to this actually also 30 or more years ago. Um, and I think it's true that all physicians fear infirmity. Uh, we fear dying, perhaps even more than most others do, normal people that is. Uh, that was a concept I learned from Howard Spiro, a gastroenterologist at Yale who wrote an excellent book uh, called When Physicians Are, Are Sick. And yeah, the more I thought about it, you know, uh, yeah, it, it does make some sense that if you were worried about becoming sick or dying, one way to handle that anxiety could be to, to achieve a medical education. And uh, particularly if you were raised by parents who were ill or you were ill yourself as a child, and that's a very common story for physicians, it would make sense. So I believe that he's right. So here we go. As if when we find we need to be patients, we've got this fear and the very fact that you are seeking treatment and not able to diagnose or treat yourself can feel like an admission of failure because we were all, at least we all have heard this, maybe Greg knows the origin, um, this term, you know, physician heal thyself. Like that's one of our duties is to heal ourselves, which is utterly ridiculous, but we still all know it. Next, um, it's not common knowledge that um, the Pope has someone who is especially trained to be the Pope's confessor. But there is absolutely no training that I've ever heard of to train physicians to be a physician's physician. Then add to that that none of us ever enjoys having our physical exam skills and our diagnostic processes closely or even intimately evaluated by a colleague. It's intimidating. <laughs> and especially it's intimidating if, if the colleague is really sick and you know that their life may depend on the things that you might automatically do for somebody else, you might hesitate to do for them because, you know, you think, oh my God, I can't screw up on this one. Or if they're not sick, you think, you know, am I doing this exam right? <laughs> you know, am I actually putting the stethoscope on the skin or am I going through clothing with all the epitacial sounds? There are all kinds of ways you question yourself when you know that you're being examined. It's kind of like going through an oral board review process with an actual patient or three. So there's that issue. Um, and then, then there are ways that we ourselves make ourselves terrible patients. We, because we are high control people, all of us, especially maybe emergency physicians. Um, we fear loss of control. Um, and so we tend tor towards adopting this so-called VIP syndrome. Um, we find it very hard to resist becoming VIP patients, both because we're feeling this horrible loss of control and we're feeling vulnerable and we're we've seen that bad things can happen to patients and we don't want us to be the patient to whom a bad thing happens. So we often will lapse into the kind of, Oh, uh, you know, are you sure that you, you know, that, that you did check the blood pressure uh, or, you know, et cetera, you, you, you kind of sometimes unconsciously demand that you be treated differently and maybe a little better. Um, even though it's been well illustrated that this often leads to suboptimal outcomes. So in a way we're responsible for at least half of all the reasons that physicians perhaps are, are not the best patients and don't necessarily get the best care. 
Yeah, that that's hard to um I guess talk about in court though, you know. Yeah, it didn't go in that room all that much because they were really annoying, but we know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. You know, the I was asked recently if we would have a segment on VIP care. Um, do you treat people? You know, this is from UCLA where they have all of the beautiful people go and um Somebody was curious as to whether you treat people differently who are in fact VIPs. And uh, unless, now this this may be uh, uncharitable, uh, unless you're a good liar, I think the answer is yes, you do treat people differently if they are uh, VIPs. You don't, you want to make them, you're in the room more, you're asking how they're doing more, you're uh, you're trying to make it clear that you're going to do a good job for them. All of these things that you ought to be doing with everybody, uh, you start you, you start uh, letting it out. Um, but then I may be wrong. Maybe that's only my view of it. Um, no, you're absolutely right on. Um, I've actually been a patient at Cedars, uh, you know, on the recommendation of one of your and my and Greg's colleagues. And um, I think I was treated like a VIP after they finally realized I'd been waiting for two hours in the waiting room. And, uh, you know, I received excellent care regardless. I tried not to be, to act the VIP part anyway. Um, at the same time, you can get in trouble with that. Uh, let me make sure to check myself to alter some details here. But um, at one of the sites I worked at, you know, we had kind of frequent VIPs and at some point, you know, a patient flew in and the plan was they were kind of a, a post-op patient and they were having terrible back pain. And the plan was they were just going to kind of buzz through the ED. Um, they registered as an ED patient, but they're going to buzz through the ED and then go upstairs to their private room where their surgeons were going to evaluate them. But, you know, they they registered as my patient. And so I felt like I should probably see them and they were kind of screaming in pain. And, um, but their, their surgeon was waiting to see them upstairs in their private room, you know, in their fancy wing. Um, and they really wanted nothing to do with the ED. And we kind of had this tussle with the people that were trying to transport them upstairs. Like, you know, I, I feel like I have some responsibility for them. And they were like, you're not my doctor, my doctor's upstairs. And ultimately, you know, they ended up going upstairs, getting evaluated for this post-op thing. And they had a kidney stone, which, you know, I probably would have caught if they would have stopped in the ED, because that's like, I probably could have talked to them for five minutes and gotten that history. That was more classic for a kidney stone than a post-op spine infection. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, sometimes playing that VIP card and, and bypassing the system that's in place for a reason you know, works against you too. So that I think maybe it works is, against you most of the time. Yeah. And that's a perfect um, example in emergency medicine. That you uh, yeah. Have. Great example. Uh, I should point out, uh, Louise, that uh, Rachel works at Mayo. No, <laughs> you shouldn't point that out. <laughs> well, no, no. I, I intentionally mean, don't you, point you, that out. Thank you. you you've trained <laughs> at Mayo. No, you're from Mayo. She's from Minnesota. She's, her father was the dean. It's like, she's got Mayo in her blood. <laughs> and and I wanted to acknowledge that there was a listing just recently, a couple of days ago, of what somebody thought were the best hospitals in the the ten best hospitals in the country, 
and Mayo Rochester was uh, alternating one or two, depending on what, what they were looking at in terms of cardiology care or oncology or something like that. And Mayo, Mayo Phoenix was in the top, in the top 10 as well uh, for most of the things that they were looking at. So I would be extraordinarily proud to, you know, work at Mayo. You yeah, have come from a hospital of extraordinary tradition. However, I don't know that they endorse my involvement with this. So I don't say Mayo all that often. Yeah, so, no, I'm, okay. I'm the one who drags you in. That's for sure. Hey. <laughs> Maybe this was at some other hospital where you were moonlighting, although you're probably not allowed to moonlight. So I, I, I this will just get worse and worse and worse. Yes, okay. thank you. The opinions expressed <laughs> on this podcast are those of the individual speakers and none of the institutions of which they are now or have. Perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> institutions at which they used to work. At some <laughs> unnamed site. Thank you very much, Louise. All right. Okay. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a divergence. No, that was perfect. That's a great story, though. Yeah. So, you know, when I became a Medscape blogger, I um, sort of, you know, you write what you know about. And so most of what I wrote initially was about um, aspects of managing malpractice litigation stress and also expert witness issues. And um, then while these other stories about physicians as patients were coming out, I thought, well, hmm, gee, I wonder how readers feel physicians might manage being on the other side. And about the same time, there was a fantastic piece of my mind in the Journal of the American Medical Association, I think it was June 21, by a physician mother, whose name I believe was Krakauer, whose child's diagnosis was missed for many, many months. And the outcome was suboptimal, to say the least. And she was talking about the anguish this had caused her and her family. And as, as much as she was anguished by her child's suffering and the family's um, suffering, she was even more anguished by the reluctance of the team of doctors taking care of the child to either explain how it is that they'd missed the diagnosis or you know, how they could have missed the diagnosis or to apologize sincerely. And it was a heart-rending piece of my mind. Um, it really moved me to sit down and actually write something. So at that point, reflecting on some of my own episodes of care in the past, I realized that there have been several in which either my complaints were dismissed and the diagnosis as a result was completely missed, or I was inadequately informed of potential adverse outcomes of surgery. Uh, or the surgery was performed incompetently. And, you know, fortunately, I never experienced any serious or lasting injury from any of these things. But it, it caused me to reflect on what might have prompted me to sue. And what might well have prompted me to sue, just as it does any normal patient, is if the physician had dismissed or minimized my complaints before a serious diagnosis was realized. And that's what happened in several of these COVID cases, for example. Or if the physician did not acknowledge or, or actually denied an error or omission that was incontrovertible in retrospect. Yeah. And thirdly, and perhaps this is even most important, is if the physician did not seem to care for me as a person. Because I can forgive a lot if I think someone has done their best, but if they have done a shoddy job, uh, if they've done it 
willfully or negligently, and there was a bad result, and they didn't even seem to care what they had done. Those are the things that might have pushed me to litigation. You know, we have talked multiple times about the apology laws and why uh, apologies usually don't uh, work very well in the hospital setting because um, uh, it's the apologies are not complete apologies. They're they're limited apologies. They're um, they're not acknowledging it's my fault. It's uh, here's what we're uh, going to do to uh, resolve it for you as best we can. Here's what we're going to do to re- to prevent this from happening to other people. Those are all things that people want to hear in an apology, and it's not what they usually get because there's always this fear of if I admit too much that it will be used against me in in the, in the litigation process. So what comes out are, are these half baked apologies. Yeah, the I guess I was going to try to pull up the numbers quick. I'll still look here in a second. Um, the last time I looked was a study in 2020 that showed, I think at that point, 39 states had some type of apology law in the books. But the apology laws could be either what's considered a full apology law, which is less common, or a partial apology law. And in right. the full apology law, it protects both a statement of you know remorse, sympathy, whatever, and an expression of it was my fault. Any statement like that, that full thing would be protected. Arizona has that, but most states have what's considered a partial apology law, where if you say, you know, I'm so sorry, this was my fault. The, the I'm so sorry is protected, but the, it was my fault is not. And so that really limits the ability of a physician to have, you know, an appropriate full conversation with a patient, because if all you could say is, you know, I'm so sorry, but you can't go on and say, you know, this is what we think happened. This is why it happened. All of that. Um, you know, you're pretty limited in that. And it's not probably a comfortable uh, discussion for a physician to get into. And even with the full apology law, let's just say you walk in there and you say, I'm so sorry, it was my fault. I think the natural thing is then you want to explain kind of what happened. How did this happen? You want to explain that, but all that's protected is the, I'm so sorry, it's my fault, not the rest of it. Right. So, you know, these laws, I think they're well-intentioned, but, but they're still limited. And when you look at, you know, studies showing the effect of those, it's pretty limited. There's like the studies themselves are limited. And then some show, maybe there's some benefit. Some, some show there's not, I think, you know, overall they're, they're definitely not the answer. And most physicians don't know which state they live in, which law applies to them and basically say nothing. And uh, when the mistake is obvious and it had just happened right then and there, most human beings would acknowledge it. And what, and what you can do, do is just basically say nothing, which makes it look ridiculous. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but- you should know if you live in a state where you can say, I'm sorry, because obviously like patients want that and you should, you should say, I'm sorry, if you can. Well, we have listed all those states, but my concern, frankly, is, is that this might be a moving target. And just like helmet laws have gone away, they may take away these apology laws. And you might have thought and that you would depend on our list of apologies. And next thing you know, I have you to know, put a disclaimer on the bottom of this list, you know. I, I don't know how many, I don't know if they've actually gone away. I think the the bigger danger is that 
you, you say, I'm sorry. And then as a human being, you have a further discussion and that the rest of that discussion, you know, is implicated, right? It's not protected. Um, but you know, the hope is because you've said, I'm sorry, you've kind of, you've cooled the situation, but you know, the the date, every, everybody who is listening uh, to this broadcast should, as soon as it's over, because this is a huge issue, call the risk manager for your department and your hospital and say, what are the apology laws in this state? Uh, I don't have an issue right now, but I want to know before anything ever happens. And I will promise to call you because um, obviously lawyers will know what laws uh, are currently in effect and how they can be uh, misinterpreted or um, misacted upon. And they will very often either volunteer to be with you in that situation or at the very least will coach you before a situation in which you wish to issue an apology, especially in those systems that combine apology with um, uh, with a, some kind of an offer like the VA system uh, where yeah. they're actually compensating. Greg's neighbor is uh, Dr. Boothman, who <laughs> has gotten the, pro- uh, the program at Michigan University of Michigan established and which has been written about, about its successes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they've been quite successful. The VA, of course, they have special protections already, but um, at least the data they've put out suggests that it's been very effective. And I'm, you know, I would think that when you have uh, an apology, when you have an explanation, and when you have some monetary reward uh, that that should result in mm-hmm. everyone feeling more justly treated at the end, including the physician who, let's face it, has some some degree of moral injury. If you know that something was done wrong and you are told by somebody, you can't even say, you know, I feel really badly. So right. Mich- Michigan's apology laws, it's or uh, whatever error disclosure system, whatever they call it, is very yeah, different yeah. though, because that's basically like, you know, as a physician, you could be like, oh man, I screwed up. I'm going to go proactively alert somebody. Then we're going to go kind of create this, you know, package to go tell the patient and basically, you know, disclose this to the patient and offer them some settlement outside of court. So it, it's all kind of in this closed loop system, but it's not just like, you know, and I'm sorry, can we be done with that? It's like, it's, it's a very, um, it's the closed whole system. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and one of the things that is always recommended is that you call the risk management person immediately because maybe they have a, a more skill at talking to the patient than you do. I certainly hope so, but in that regard, but they usually don't work after five o'clock, you know, (laughs) it's like, what am I going to do? I mean, I just screwed up and, and it's not something I can defer. I I have to say something right then and there. Ours are 24 seven. Well, you, you, you do well, of have course, to deal because you of the, of the excellent hospital. That's right. You're the mayor. Right. They do two things right. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's rare that you have to try to do a formal apology right away. I think it's perfectly acceptable in the majority of cases to say, you know, we're experiencing your loved one and all of us here are experiencing a bad outcome, even though we've done everything that could be done. Um, and we're going to continue to do everything we can to, you know, to get the best possible ultimate outcome. Um, right now, let's, you know, pray together or let's, 
let's keep our thoughts on the positive support for all the person that we all are most interested in, who is your loved one, our patient. I think that's something you can safely do any hour. Um, but that's my opinion. It's not a le- not legal advice, but that's what I did. You know, I should point out that uh, Louise has a, a JD um, as well, so that uh, her views are tempered by her experience with both sides of the of the questions that uh, we address, and she's using a lot of her talents on the plaintiffs. I mean, on the defense side, uh, on our side. When did you go to law school, Louise? Um, at age 35, uh, after I'd been on faculty at Hopkins for um, about five years. And I did it uh, night. I worked nights, weekends, and holidays so I could do, you know, part-time law school days, nights, whenever the good professors were there. And, <laughs> and it was fantastic, fascinating experience. Uh, I passed the bar, but I never practiced law, and I never intended to. My intent was to educate physicians about what it is that we aren't educated about uh, in medical training that we should have been educated about. Well, in that regard, are, are there any um, final thoughts that you may have about what to do if you if you have experienced um, as a patient um, mistakes? that are that are that are of some consequence well i think we we tend not to take action because we all know that mistakes are made within the system and we know how little of it is in the control of the physicians so i think that doctors are very reticent to sue other doctors Um, we also know the kind of stress that that imposes on the other side so i think it's a a, a very high bar but it doesn't it's not to say that it can't be done or shouldn't be done in some instances. Um, I have a friend who's also very active in this space that some of us are in terms of litigation stress, who uh, you know, is, is trying to, to sort out what the best approach might be to the situation. Um, and I don't think we know what the best approach is, but I think it's to remain open to uh, any possible resolution that will make you feel whole and that will uh, maybe respect the fact that you, your colleagues, just like you are not perfect. Yeah. We've had a couple of sessions with uh, Gita Pensa Mm -hmm. who uh, went through this horrible lawsuit and probably never recovered from it. Um, And all of her work after her lawsuit was probably, uh, and an effort to deal with what she had gone through, uh, but it's it's a tough job because it's not it's not quite clear what to say. You know, you may may uh, you know it's easy to say, you know, uh, well, we know it's going to be stressful on your family, and we know it may affect your health and your sleep. And there's a divorce rate is higher. I mean, how do you how do you respond to? all of these anxieties that uh, somebody's going to uh, go through. Do you have any kind of simple, easy things to consider that that you can go fall back on whenever you're feeling, you know, badly? Well, generically, yes. But are we talking now about 
how to soothe yourself when you have been the recipient of poor care? Or are we talking about how do you care for yourself when you have been sued for malpractice? Uh, I switched over. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was a little too subtle about that. Uh, oh. The idea of how do you deal with uh, physicians who are struggling and who are suffering from this litigation business? Okay, well, I don't think there's any one pat answer to that. I think um, the most important thing to recognize when you, not if, but when you are brought into litigation, which the vast majority of us will be if you practice, have a full practice right. uh, life, um, is that you're you're not alone. It's happened to many of your colleagues and some you don't even know about. And to some, it's happened many times. And even really good doctors that you know have had multiple, multiple cases that were the result of a bad system or bad hospital or bad luck or bad patients or some combination of all of those things. And it doesn't mean that you are not a good doctor. It certainly doesn't mean you are not a good person, because if you were not a good person, you wouldn't have gone into this field, which is so challenging to begin with. So those, you know, those are two of the most important things to remember. The third thing to remember is that very few doctors don't make it through litigation. Uh, there is the rare case, and I've only really uncovered uh, one or two in all of my years of, of watching this space, um, where a doctor suicided in the, you know, in the setting of litigation. Um, typically, we get through it, but that doesn't mean it's going to be fun or quick or easy. Um, and so it often helps to gather what support you can. And that begins, of course, with uh, ignoring the lies that your risk managers have told you that you can't talk to anybody, which is blatantly not true. Um, there are certain categories of people to whom you can talk with without any hesitation, and that primarily includes your spouse or your lawyer, of course, or your clergy person or your doctor or your treating uh, specialist. Um, and you and everybody, every human being who's experienced something such as being slapped with a lawsuit needs to talk to somebody. So if you believe that lie that you can't talk to anybody, then you're going to suffer inordinately and, and unjustly uh, because it's just simply not true. So I think those are the key things. I may not be thinking of some others, because of course I usually work with people for weeks or months. Um, there are a couple of books that I've recommended that kind of go over this in much greater detail. Um, and I recommend them both on my website, which is, uh, I guess I could say it's mdmentor.com, which, uh, which is the one that relates to litigation stress issues. Um, and I'll stop because I'm sure others have some good input here too. I've gotten some insight on this from watching my husband go through a lawsuit recently, which uh, has been fun. So he's a physician, a different specialty, and has been kind of wading his way through a lawsuit. And so a couple of things that I thought were interesting. So when he first started, he was assigned representation and didn't really, uh, I don't know, mix with that, that mm -hmm. lawyer. Well, and so every time he hung up the phone, he 
felt terrified about what the next step was, you know, felt like he was just going down fast, was going to lose his career, you know, like this was the end of the world and also was super confused, you know, so would kind of report back to me in a way that made no sense. Be like, so what I would ask, what's the next step? And I, I could not figure it out because he did not know, you know, and it was all very confusing. And I finally encouraged him to kind of get somebody else and he got somebody else and he loves this person. He thinks this person is great. They're very clear. They're very confident. And so, you know, now when the next step happens, he talks to this lawyer and he's just like, yeah, they're on it. It's fine. And so, you know, he now can proceed with, with so much less stress and he's carrying so much less on him because he feels, you know, confident that this lawyer is carrying it and he understands what's happening. He, you know, he's communicating clearly. And so I feel like, you know, the lesson I learned from that is, you know, you do have some choice over who's representing you. And if you aren't kind of mixing well with person one, like keep going down the list until you find somebody that, that works for you. Um, and then, you know, ask questions like that person is representing you, you know, they're working for you. And so, um, if you don't, if, if they're not, if you don't understand what's happening, they're not doing their job very, very well. And you can kind of keep pressing them. Um, because I think he felt like he was kind of, you know, just along for the ride, but really, I mean, he was paying their bills and he felt like he couldn't ask those questions and, and things. So, um, it was just fascinating for me to sit back and kind of watch this and have him hang up the phone and be like, why didn't you ask that? And he'd be like, oh, they were busy. You know, it's crazy. I thought it was really nice of your husband to sacrifice himself so that you could personally witness the uh, litigation process. Yes, I was like, just just read that wrong, and I'll see how it goes. Great job. You know, there was a study by uh, U.S. Acute Care Solutions looking at the the cases that they had, um, and over a four-year period, one in 11 of their physicians got sued, which is four years. Now, when you think of a 30-year career, what's the likelihood of you getting away with not being uh, uh, sued during that period of time. I mean, it, it's it's at least half of physicians are going to be be sued and go through this process. So it's kind of like, you would think we would kind of be in better shape to handle this stuff. And um, we, we've talked about it extensively over the years on this uh, recording. Um, the other people, thing, go ahead. But people take this as a, personal attack in our system while in australia you know the system is okay mr so-and-so got hurt uh we'll we'll compensate him to so much by the state and we're going to look at the care rendered by so mr uh, dr so-and-so and if that care was um uh by peer review uh needs some help we'll 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 deal with that separately so there there, there there's a dichotomy state will yeah. pay you for your injury uh, we're going to work to see whether there was an issue of the quality of the care rendered by the physician. The other thing that came to mind listening was, you know, you you hear these stats all the time, like X percentage of physicians are going to get sued. Like you said, one in 11 over a four-year period, but they kind of just, you know, if you're not one of those people, you kind of hear them and then they go away. And I think until you're the subject of it. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, 
you still feel very alone when you become the subject of it. And, uh, you know, I remember I found out I was in a group of emergency physicians the other day and we started talking about one of the people there had been sued and I was kind of stunned. I mean, there were like 20 of us there and I was like, what? you were sued, you know, and that was so shocking to me. And I realized like, that's really dumb of me to be shocked by that because I talk about these stats all the time, yet it still was shocking to me. And then all these other people who I know very well, we talk about, or we talk to all the time, they start talking about how many times they've been sued and they have never, ever talked about this before. You know, it was like everybody's dirty little secret. And so it's just, you know, I think we kind of do each other a disservice by, by not talking about it. And some of these were like ongoing lawsuits. So these are people that are kind of, I, again, you know, you're told you can't talk about it and it's true. You can't talk, you, you shouldn't be talking about the details with your colleagues. That doesn't mean you can't say like, I'm under a lot of stress because I'm getting sued. Like, that's not what this rule means. It, you know, you could tell people I'm under stress because I'm being sued, but, but people don't even say that I think because of the shame associated with it. And I think right. we're, we're doing our colleagues a disservice by hiding, hiding that. Yeah, I it's think the word better. is shame. Yeah, it is shame. It's a little better, perhaps, Rachel, than than it was when I first got involved in this and Greg and Rick probably, but um, there still is a lot of shame. And one of the reasons is that our jurisprudential system, unlike those of you know more enlightened countries, is designed to inflict shame. It's in, in designed to inflict shame and pain by using some of the nastiest tactics to inflict enough pain on physicians that they will agree to settle rather than um, lit litigate a case to its conclusion. Yeah. Um, and the second really compounding factor is that every one of us, and, and that would include you know, those on this call, um, have from time to time made, made that leap from, oh, they were sued to, oh, they did something bad, um, which you know, intellectually, we know is not always, by any means, always the case. And yet, you know, even if even we can make that mistake, then, you know, families are making that kind of mistake. So it's kind of hard sometimes to explain to your own family what is happening and why it's happening. And certainly to if you I'm not in emergency medicine so much, but in uh, private practices, you know, your whole practice can think, oh, my goodness, did our, you know, person here that we work for do something bad? Or even an emergency department staff, you know, uh, gee, I've seen that person make mistakes before. I guess they did it again, huh? Mm -hmm. there, there are assumptions that, that compound the shame, compound the pain, and make it very difficult to move on. And yet, because we are sentient human beings, and because a, 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 a claim of malpractice hits us right in the, the seat of our reason for being, we're we went into medicine to help people to stay well and stay alive. And when something happens that they don't stay well, or, you know, God forbid, don't stay alive, um, it, we've already had a blow to the heart. And so when you start inflicting shame and pain on top of that, it's a recipe for disaster, e even though it's actually a, a legal trick to force uh, an easy settlement. Uh, and I yeah. think it's it's really shameful on us as a system that we allow this to continue. One of Greg's most famous famous quotes is, "You can call me a bad father, you can call me a bad husband, but don't you dare call me a bad doctor." <laughs> it's it is the way we're we're built, <laughs> and it, it it is 
And no matter, matter where you go and who you talk to, the day that piece of paper arrives is not a good day. I, I've <laughs> never seen anybody who was overjoyed at getting a summons and complaint with regard to a case. I've never seen it. Yeah, I think we can um, we we can sort of move on to you know what we can do if we are, become aware that a colleague is being sued um, in terms of um, sure support and um, because they're they're going to be pretty down uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately unless they have a really good good wiring uh, or uh, you know I recall being sued. Largely not because of anything I did, but because I was the director of the hot, of the department. But it was still a, oh geez, here we go, kind of thing. Um, so it makes you sad, and it makes you you kind of doubt yourself, and you feel bad for your colleagues who are going through this process. It's almost like uh, feeling bad for your colleagues when they're going through a divorce. You know they are suffering, and there's really little you can do except to try and comfort them in some way. Um, yes, you can, you can always say, you know, I, I never liked her anyway, you know, oh, <laughs> please. Right. You want to do encouraging things, you know, you want to make your, your colleagues feel better, you know? Right. Right. Um, well, I think what we were just talking about, you can share your own stories about, you know, you're not alone. This has happened to us, you know, we've been sued or we've had these times where we should have been sued. We could or, have been sued. That's a, a, an important point that uh, I never think to to mention, Rachel. Um, I this is uh, this was the bad break. You know, I've had lots of lucky breaks. That's one way to sort of reframe it. Um, I will tell you candidly that I've been sued three times, um, and in not one, well, in in two of the cases, I had never actually seen the patient. This is back in the days where we were required to sign a bunch of charts, even though we never saw the patient. And um, the third case, I had the patient for five minutes, and this patient was moribund, and you know the team was unable to resuscitate a moribund patient. And so, you know, I was able to navigate these things a little bit more easily each time because I knew the system. I knew how, you know, you can sort of manage the system and um, I knew that it wouldn't kill me because it had already happened before. And uh, it, it was the first case, of course, that prompted me to actually go into law school. The second case, I believe I was maybe in law school. It was like, oh, not again. Okay. And by the third case, it was, well, you know, this is, this is the way they do things. And here's, you know, here's how I'm going to handle it. And I almost had reached the level that a lawyer has and that, you know, they, lawyers sometimes think doctors should have, uh, which is to be able to handle this as just a cost of doing business. It wasn't completely possible because, of course, I still felt badly that there were bad outcomes that, you know, that human beings had to suffer and had to deal with. Um, but it, it does get easier with practice. And so I, I think to the point about uh, offering emotional support, if you have had personal experience, it may well not be known to the other person who's undergoing this. And so to, to just simply say to them, you know, I've been there. It's not fun. It might last four or five years if you're really unlucky, but you will get through this. It's uh, many of your colleagues have survived, including me, and you can too, and you will. 
And I think some of the, even the logistics stuff, you know, where is the court building? What am I supposed to wear to this? You know, like how long does this thing last? I think those things are very stressful just because you're alone and trying to figure that out. You don't have anybody to ask. So if one of your colleagues has been through it and you can ask them, that's super helpful. I really think coming forward and being, you know, if, if there's somebody that's done it before, I mean, your lawyers can tell you those things too, but, um, nice to have a colleague. Although there, there is the concern that, you know, maybe I did do something wrong or not. Maybe I did do something wrong. Um, uh, which really, uh, causes you to relive the, relive those cases. What could I have done better? Uh, you know, I, uh, I should not have given this drug. I should have given that drug. I, I didn't recognize there was the hemothorax and, or, you know, all of these things were in fact. Yeah. But what, like, we're, if, if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, who you, if you're talking to a colleague, I, okay, you can't discuss that case, but like, you have to be kind to yourself and re- recognize that that's just going to happen. You know, you're seeing however many thousand patients a year, you're not going to be perfect. Yes, ideally, I think the idea is just to ideally step away and say, this is just business. I paid the premium. They they handle the, pro- handle the problem. Unfortunately, I have to be dragged through the mud a little bit in the process, but uh, I, we're all going to survive, survive. I won't lose my license. I didn't do anything criminal. Um, you know, you <laughs> that's too, that's too rational. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's another piece to this um, that I hope is not as bad now as it was in, in my days of training, but um, I trained at Duke and Hopkins and uh, we were not only not told anything about, um, you know, the, the fact that you're going to be sued or how to handle it if you get sued, but we were given the distinct impression that if we were anywhere nearly as good as our faculty, we didn't even need to worry about these things. <laughs> Greg, I'm sure you've probably experienced this, and Rick, you of too. Of course, of course, absolutely. And what everybody has to realize is that uh, that piece of paper is going to arrive for each one of us at some point in time in our career. I, I know very few emergency doctors who have gone through a 35 career uh, year career and have not gotten involved in some way with a lawsuit. It, it is part of what we do for a living. And I think you need to take a deep breath early on in your career and realize that because otherwise it could be a miserable uh, career if you're totally consumed with the fear. Oh yeah. We've all seen physicians who are so risk averse that the, that they over order and, um, the patients wind up being paying for their fear. And sometimes um, with their lives, you know, because these tests are not always <laughs> innocuous. Having been sued makes you a, a much more paranoid position. It puts a huge wedge between you and future patients, unless you can get past that. And it uh, increases actually the likelihood that you're going to be sued again, especially early on when you're in the throes of a first malpractice case is when yeah. a second one is most likely to come along. Well, yes. you know, these, folks from USAC did a second study of looking at the, the behavior of the physicians who were sued. There were like 95 of them. And uh, they didn't wind up ordering any more tests, which 
just shocked me. But what immediately changed was their patient satisfaction scores. They got the message that you got to be, be nice to patients. And um, I thought the reason they couldn't order any more tests is there were no more tests to order. <laughs> you know, but but that, that, that's just a cynical point of view, I know. Uh, but I think that that's pretty cool that this big spike in uh, patient satisfaction, I think, was a reflection of a lesson that they kind of um, learned. That doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes, but but it means that you're going to try to make patients glad that you were their doctor. I think you're putting too much credence on patient satisfaction. Oh, there you, there you go. You know, because <laughs> we can have a debate about that sometime. All right. Oh, but still, um, the last, uh, I, I'm surprised, quite frankly, Rachel, that, that, that patient satisfaction scores would go up. But I could also see a scenario where, you know, people are bending over backwards to do everything, give them all the drugs they want, you know, do everything. Right. That, that, More dilated for you. Yeah, just exactly. Just to, yeah. Don't, get, don't get me fired. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but on the other hand, there's no question that the most effective it's not completely effective, but the most effective risk management tool you have in your belt is making the patient like and trust you yep. and believe that you are on their side. Greg, you I, agree? I agree. Uh, it's like do unto others. It's like, it's yeah, really I, easy to find I, out what's the right thing to do in the emergency department. It's what would you want done for your family members? That, that That's always exactly. the answer. Exactly. And if... Uh, the biggest mistake I see young actors making is not communicating with the family of their patients. Bring them in for the discussion, for the talk. Where are you going? What are you going to do? Can I make that any easier to, to make something happen into the future? Patients care about that sort of thing, and they note it. And uh, you'll hear that occasionally out of a patient. Uh, oh, well, there's that doctor. I, I like him. I saw him before. You know what? That's a good thing. <laughs> and uh, because uh, grandma is going to die. And at some point in time, you don't want to be the one held uh, uh, as being guilty or responsible for that death. Well, I'll try to remember that 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 grandma's going to die line. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm all for communicating and building rapport, but I do think there's a limit to like you know let's let's minimize our liability risk by satisfying our patients because I can make patients very happy by giving them their dilated, but I draw the line. You know, the patients that leave the ED, like flipping me the bird, are the ones you know and telling me they're going to sue me are the ones I didn't give dilated to. And I'll continue to do that and take the risk of a lawsuit. And I think that's the right thing to do. So I do think that I think we have that's some the like, hard ass position. I, know, I think we've got some social responsibility to balance here. So I will maintain that line. Well, let me, um, <laughs> um, I'll agree with that. And I'll also uh, go back to what Greg said. Uh, and I'm, it's so important that we start educating our residents at the very beginning that, you know, there may not be a patient around at the time that you are in court defending the malpractice claim. And you need to befriend and get the entire family to also know that you are on the side of their patient. Um, because, I mean, it may not ultimately discourage them from suing, but if anything will, that might. 
Uh, don't forget that that family yeah, is part of the unit. They, they did their best. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It goes a long way. Louise, what about um, this last part? Uh, okay, let me, let me say one more thing about um, what, how to support a colleague who's being sued. Uh, we've covered most of them. Um, I think it's important to share very clearly with a colleague that's being sued that, you know, this is one of the most stressful events in the life of a physician. This is a very reasonable time to seek professional support. If there is any time that's reasonable right. and no one's going to question you, it's when you're going through the most horrific insult that can happen in the life of a physician. Well, that's a great point that, you know, you need permission to go get uh, uh, help and everybody will acknowledge if there's ever a time that somebody would be, need help, this is a, a, an approved time to go see somebody. Mm -hmm. Are there uh, specific therapists, psychiatrists, whatever, is there, are there specific people that specialize in this? Well, somebody here on this call does. That's kind of been what I've been doing for the last 30 years. Yeah. Uh, although I'm not a therapist I'm uh, and I'm not a shrink, so I'm not a threat. I'm just an emergency physician slash lawyer and therefore a counselor in several senses. Um, I, I think um, I think if, you, if your problem is surely litigation stress, then going to somebody who has expressed an interest or has written things that, that lead you to believe they have expertise in this area is probably the, the way to go. If your problem has spilled over into aggravating, as it often does, aggravating phys physical illness, aggravating mental illness, um, you know, impacting your family in, uh, in an extremely negative way, like divorce and so forth, then, um, then there are other types of um, helpers that you should be approached, but it's professional, it, professional support is very well justified in this situation. Uh, and no one is going to question you for doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Never thought of that idea before. That's, I think that that, that gives permission for people to look for help. Mm -hmm. Which when you're the uh, when you're the director of a department, you should expect that whenever a summons complaint is is uh, arrives and one of your people has gotten it, you should be involved with them. I mean, that's what chiefs of departments do. Uh, and and particularly for the younger physicians, they need that support of mature physicians who've been through it, have, have been through the process, had done all that sort of thing, they need it. And uh, to not see that as a part of your role as chief of the department is a mistake. And I, I hope most department chiefs now acknowledge that that is part of their role and are, are actively taking on, or at least they've designated someone else to take it on. Yes. There are some... Um, medical societies that have litigation stress peer support programs. Um, unfortunately, ASEP is not one of them anymore. Um, but um, if you happen to belong, I don't know about AAEM, um, but if either they or if your state, some states actually have such programs, some, I would guess, I mean, Mayo, as you know, uh, is one of the leaders in physician wellness. And I would not be surprised if in some of their group support, they also uh, do at least touch on litigation stress support. Now, whether they 
do individual counseling, I don't know. Um, I know that Hopkins has a program that, um, you know, that says that they provide free and actually uh, non-identified um, uh, consultation for various issues. Uh, and it, it conceivably could be covered in a program like that if your own hospital has it. So it's worth investigating, uh, you know, certainly if you feel that you might get drawn into a suit, and then certainly if you do get drawn into a suit and you don't know where to start looking for the kind of professional support that you need. Yeah. I think Mayo just goes, like they follow you around and give you a back rub if you're involved in. Oh, you better not say that. That's much worse than what I said, you know. (laughs) Uh, Well, they practically invented, you know, Tate Shanafelt is, you know, is an amazing person. He's now at Stanford, but I think they they have done more than any other institution, not necessarily the Phoenix branch, but, uh, you know, the Rochester branch. Uh, you may, having been there, disagree, but I don't have that, you know, I only have the literature to go by. So, yeah. You know, uh, that brings up the idea of, well, what if this is uh, slipping into some marital issues or the like? And then there's this uh, through the medical staff or the hospital, they offer some kind of the ability to get counseling. And then you get into this issue of, I'm very fearful that if I go there, um, uh, it will somehow get into uh, a record and somebody will know about it and it may affect my recredentialing or it may reflect uh, uh, when I try to get privileges at another hospital because, um, and we talked about that on our MRAP segment, the, the fear often appropriately so, that your confidential information that relates to psychosocial issues may come out and harm you. Yeah, so an anecdote to introduce that, and then you can take it away, Louise, was when I was um, a resident, there was an intern at another institution that uh, she was, she had an eating disorder. And I guess I'd had it for a long, long time. You know, I don't know if she's on meds for it, but had been working with a psychiatrist and was coming up to the point that she needed to apply for her license. And beca- she became afraid that she was going to have to disclose this and that somehow, you know, her program was going to find out, her parents were going to find out. And so like up building up to that point, she intentionally overdosed on oxycodone roll it out to her parents saying you know kind of disclosing all of this yeah. and saying i just i can't face it anymore i'm sorry i can't you know i, I don't want to deal with it anymore and and died by suicide um and that's a fear that a lot of people have that if they disclose that they're dealing with a mental health issue or taking medications that they're not going to be allowed to practice medicine Yes. And of course, again, we could do a whole hour and a half section on this one issue, which was touched on in the MRAP section uh, session. Um, I will I will say uh, I will say to you, quite frankly, that and you know this, Rachel, because you 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 live in both worlds. Doctors know nothing about the law and yet they assume that they know as much as they need to know. And they also assume that in many respects, the law that applies to everybody else does not does not apply to them. And specifically, I'm speaking about the Americans with Disabilities Act, which prohibits the asking of any questions 
other than whether you are currently experiencing, currently, right now, or within the last year at most, symptoms that could adversely affect your ability to practice medicine. And yet, uh, most license applications still do ask the questions. There has been an improvement in the last couple of years, but the licensure boards still hang on to this notion that they have supreme power in this arena and that they have this obligation to protect the safety of patients. And that, you know, we're talking about doctors here, not real people. And therefore this silly ADA thing that applies to normal people doesn't apply to doctors. It does. And there's slowly, slowly progress being made on this. But that doesn't mean that people haven't heard about the horrific things that have been done to doctors who have uh, innocently answered some of these questions that are illegal anyway, and then have been sucked into uh, drug treatment and rehabilitation and, you know, long-term monitoring and their lives and their careers have been ruined um, because of the ignorance and disregard, willful, wanton disregard of this law. So again, I don't want to take the rest of the time talking about this. It's obviously an area of intense concern. Um, and, you know, I'm planning to write about it in the future. So. so what advice do you have for people that, you know, have maybe just kind of run of the mill anxiety, depression, either going into residency where they're needing to apply for a license or it develops, you know, in their training or over the course of their career? Yeah. Do you counsel them that they are safe to go ahead and seek care? Or do you tell them to do cash pay and keep it off the record? Like what advice do you give to these folks? Um, okay. If they, I think we started out talking about employee assistance programs. Now, unlike the typical doctor uh, bureaucracy, uh, including medical boards and hospital administrations, EAPs know the laws and they know that any kind of mental health information is absolutely sacrosanct. It cannot be shared. So it is safe. If you have an EAP that admits physicians, it is safe to go to them and say, you can even start anonymously and say, you know, I, I may be in need of some mental health counseling, what are my protections in this situation? And then if they say, you know, the law says we cannot share it, which is what they should say. And we even have to keep entirely separate records from your employment records and so forth. Um, then, you know, it's safe to go there. Um, if someone is really in the throes of depression and, and let me, let me emphasize that anxiety and depression are the common colds of psychiatry. It is so common that uh, it would be a miracle if, you know, 30 to 40% of your colleagues hadn't experienced it at some time in their lives. Um, you should be able to go see a psychiatrist uh, if that's who you choose or a social worker or a psychologist, whoever it is. The only um, fear that you, you know, le legitimately might have is that in some states, if the patient who is a doctor appears not to be able to practice because they are so impaired by, you know, whatever this condition is, um, until they are in such state that they are uh, able to practice, then they, in some states, are actually required to report you to the medical board. And the laws vary significantly across the country. You have to know, again, the laws in your state. Um, and in, in some of the 
um, some of the legislation says the exception to this is if you are in a therapeutic relationship with your patient and the patient is safe, then there is no obligation to report. And in fact, uh, a physician who is treating another physician, say for uh, a severe depression, should be very motivated to get that person out of their depression before it reaches the stage that they're not able to practice safely, even if that requires hospitalization, which it does sometimes. And they, they could use that goal as a way of both getting the physician the quickest and most effective treatment that, that is available to them and also avoiding any state obligation to report. Although if, if you, Rachel mentioned paying cash, you know, that's another option if you really don't trust the system, you it's know, that, or they're going to see me going into the office there and they're going to wonder what am I doing over at that office? Um, I guess so. the paying cash doesn't get you away from the, the, the other physician's obligation to report, you know, you if, pay cash, you they still impaired. have that obligation. Yes, yeah, that's true. It just that's keeps true. it off your insurance record. And your record at the hospital or employee health or whatever. Yeah. Well, employee health is different from a, a employee assistance program. Right, right. Um, you want to give us a few tips on trying to help pe people who we think may be, you know, where we need to say something. Sure. I basically the I think the idea is if you see something, say something. Um, but yeah, but I think that's a, a reasonable summation. Um, I, I, one important thing to, to recognize is that high uh, power people, high control people, such as all of us are, um, don't necessarily exhibit the usual signs of depression. They don't typically go around, you know, looking sad and crying and down, you know, not making eye contact and stuff like that. Very often, uh, our particular demographic uh, is surly or you know, even angry and mean uh, or just withdrawn. So, so don't assume if your colleague is acting this way and it's a change um, that they're actually just mean or having a bad day. It, it could well mean if it's, I mean, more than one day, but if, they, if they're like, like this over a period of time and it's a change for them, then that could well be a sign that they're depressed. And uh, you're not going to, in any way, uh, by approaching them with a supportive attitude and comments, uh, going to aggravate the situation. Yeah, you might get blown off, you know, but you can handle that. Um, so don't fear going up to someone much the ways we talked about with, with litigation. And particularly if you can honestly say, look, I've had really bad times. And I, I you know, I sort of detect some of the same things that you're doing that I did when I was feeling so bad. And so I'm just wondering if everything's okay, or if it's not okay, would you be willing to sit down and just talk about it? Because that sometimes, that certainly helped me, that might help you. Uh, what do you think? Can we get some coffee or something? That's an yeah, awkward conversation to have in somebody that you're not good friends with. It is an awkward conversation, but Suppose you don't have it because it's an awkward conversation and then that person, you yeah. know, suicides and then how are you going to feel? I took the easy way out. So I've done it and I've done it even when I didn't want to, even when I didn't like the person, 
I especially have done it when no, when everybody else was being nasty to the person. Yeah. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, the relief was palpable. It's like, oh, somebody, you know, has cared enough to reach out here. Yeah. Um, and Greg, you, are you having a, a kindred uh, recollection here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if you're in this business long enough, you're going to meet, there, there are going to be high strung, tense uh, people who are going to be part of our profession. What you have to separate out is those who are just feeling bad that day from those who are heading yet down the, down the rat hole. And uh, I certainly have a couple of physicians who I worked with who committed suicide. And I think that uh, when I look back over those experiences, I can't look over those experiences without kind of shaking my head and say, why didn't I see certain things? Uh, it very, uh, it, it, it's very troubling. And uh, so I, I became, as I got farther into my career, a little more willing to ask a few more questions. Um, but I understand most physicians do not want to talk about most of these things. And, and I of think, course, go ahead, Rachel. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, when I'm trying to envision, you know, who these people are, the people's faces that are actually popping into my head are trainees. You know, yes. the, that's who fits that description for me. And I think you know, as awkward as it is for us to have that conversation, I think we're the ones who are more likely to take that on than a, another trainee. And so yes, right. we've got to really step up and be on the lookout for that and be willing to, you know, be the adults in the room. Yeah. You got to put on your big boy pants and uh, say, th this is something that is expected of you. And um, you would be terribly regretful if you didn't take some kind of action. And it's and Louise that gave gave a great example of how you can approach this, whereby you acknowledge similarities between yourself and what they may be going through. And um, I think that I rem uh, remember instances where nurses would do this to doctors who are acting badly in terms of moping and 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 such, and they would just kind of come up and put a gentle hand on their shoulder and say something really sweet about, you know, you just don't seem to be yourself recently. Can you, you want to talk about it? It's, 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 it's done out of care uh, for the person and it's done out of some degree of um, admiration and, and, and I don't want to use say the word love actually, but so listen, uh, Rachel, if you're, if you know somebody who you're concerned about, but you, you don't like them, get one of their friends to talk to them. You know? <laughs> I hear you. But for the trainees, I was just thinking about it. You know, these are their kids, you know, for the most part. And you might think I'm a kid, but also a parent. And these guys' parents <laughs> are, you know, their parents are somewhere, who knows where. And I think they're relying on us to be their, their standard parents, you know, and we do have that responsibility. So I think at some point we got to snap out of the, the, the teacher mode, or at least see this as part of the teacher mode and kind of be their caretakers too. Mm -hmm. I agree. And one, another thing to keep in mind is if they do 
you know, rebuff you, blow you off the first time. I'm, I'm, I think with residents, you're absolutely right, Rachel. You've got to be in there being the in loco parentis. But for a colleague, if they blow you off the first time, don't assume that that's the end. That may be the very first little tiny sliver crack in the ice. And the next time you come back and say, you know, I'm still really worried about you, bud, or I, you know, I, I really, I need to talk to you. It's <laughs> uh, another way you can do it. You may get in uh, and you shouldn't stop trying for all the reasons that you shouldn't hesitate to do it to begin with. And the one question that we, that we have to cover that um, everybody always uh, wonders about is, uh, what it, well, if I, if I mention the S word, is that going to push them over the brink? Um, that is, you know, when you suggest even breathe the possibility of suicide. And the answer is no, there is absolutely no indication and plenty of, of uh, research to the contrary that um, asking that question, have you, have you thought about harming yourself and pushing further even if they, if they say, no, and you don't really quite think they're being completely open with you, um, then not only is it not going to push them over, but it's going to make it easier for them to open up to you um, and, or, or to somebody else that they're going to get help because they realize that here a colleague who knows and cares about you and also knows and has experienced most likely in their practice, if not in their uh, practice community as pro I know I certainly have, and you had Rick and Greg, I think you had, uh, and Rachel, you have too, uh, who knows what it's like when somebody amongst you suicides. So do ask that question. And that may require that it be your second sit down with them, but you do it as early as you can. Um, and you do it even if it makes you uncomfortable. And even if you think the odds are extremely slim, because it may be that they are utterly relieved that someone cares to ask and here they brought a gun with them to work this morning. Can we cover one final point? Mm -hmm. um, before we started and you and I were discussing terminology, I said committed suicide. People commit suicide. And, and you said, uh, I would, there's, a, there's a better way to put that. Um, and I wasn't aware of it at all. I wasn't you said, sensitive you to it You said, never say that again. You're a terrible person. That's what you told me. Well, that yeah, was, that's, yes, that's, that's, what, that's yes, what it was. That was, yes. that, was that, that was those kind words coming from you, but yeah. I did not say that to him. No, she didn't. <laughs> so tell yeah. us about that phraseology, which is, I well, think is the common, yeah. common way you talk about this. Oh, it's, it's uh, unfortunately still extremely common, but for many years, it's been recognized that committing is something that you apply to a criminal act or occasionally to putting someone in a psychiatric hospital. But it is not something that applies to suicide, which is not a criminal act. And yet, if you use the term commit in conjunction with the word suicide, you're basically telling the person who's even thinking about it, and particularly one who's already done it, you know, well, they are a, a really bad actor. They committed something that you know, in past was a crime, but is not now. So the more, the politically correct term is to use something like completed suicide, which sounds weird, 
but that is the politically correct way to do it. People are moving a little bit more towards died by suicide. Uh, I like it better. Yeah, I do too. And I sometimes, and I tend to use suicided if it was in past. Well, of course it's going to be past. Verb. Yeah. 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 Um, one other thing to to always ask once you've you know you've broached the conversation with a person is to ask if uh, and if you determine that yes there's something going on here is to ask if they have someone to talk to if things get worse and this is where you tell them about professional assistance being perfectly justified in this situation as well and sometimes life saving um, and regardless of of their response to anything no matter how rude or you know un inviting it may be is to say, look, I'm here for you. I'm going to come back and check. And, um, and I'm available anytime you need, you know, night or day, you, you know, you have my number or give them your number and say, I value you as a person and I care about you as a colleague. And I want you to know that I'm here. And I think it's helpful to give permission to physicians to seek, uh, psychiatric care mm-hmm. hey listen guys i gotta run to the hospital where we're going to talk about giving money to the hospital because that's just what they need um <laughs> i want to thank you uh louise for joining me again uh, we have a little different audience here but i wanted to get out your message to as many people as i could uh greg yes <laughs> nice nice seeing you again <laughs> Yes. Wonderful to see you again. Yes, and, uh, yes. Thank you for having me, Rick. And it's very nice to meet you, Rachel. It was great. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you. Thanks so much to all of you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.